Hey, this is Dave Ryder from Cullamunda Church of Christ. Really praying this podcast blesses you. If you'd like to hear more of our story, how about you go to our webpage, cullamunda.church. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10. That's going to be a key verse of scripture. Today I want to talk about us. And um, I've been quite eager, actually from... um, um, late November last year, I've been quite eager to actually step into February 2021 because I had it in my mind, I had it in my heart that February was going to be the month where we kind of recenter and we regather together, not just as Kalamunda, but I had the same real um, conviction when it came to New Spring. And um, um, unlike um, New Spring, you guys don't have to wear masks today, isn't that good? <laughs> it was a little bit strange having to. Um, preach with people and they, you just see their eyes and you got the mask. You have no idea. Are you pulling a face behind that? Are you smiling or are you growling at me right now? But you guys can't hide. <laughs> um, but I want to talk about what it means to be the church and I'm going to actually try to summarize a little bit of what we went through last year and actually step into actually um, clarifying what it means to be the church. The title of today's message is This Is Us. This Is Us. And um, like I said, there are two distinct things which I'm really hoping will happen in the life of Kalamunda Church of Christ this year, or this, this month, I should say. The first thing I've already articulated, we are, um, we, we've got these guests coming through who are the candidates for our executive pastor. And the process of this is that we are ultimately looking at, God, what does it look like? What is the permanent senior pastor um, for Kalamunda Church of Christ? So that's a really, really exciting thing. And as I said before, that should be something that every, par- every person who is part of this church, you should be engaged and very interested um, when it comes to actually praying and seeking God and actually um, sort of bringing your encouragement towards that. So that's one thing which we're um, doing. Um, The second thing is knowing that last year was such an interesting year um, and it brought a lot of complexities, um, most of which actually came... Um, because of a global pandemic and a lot of the complexities were actually felt not just by Kalamunda Church of Christ but in my conversations with other pastors throughout Perth we've all experienced and we've all observed the same things which have happened there seems to be a universal thing that's happened when it comes to the church this is a month where we want to actually regather our church we want to recenter our church and I actually want to actually really bring us around scripture as to what scripture says who we are what we do and what we are supposed to embody in this world Um, And like I said, I really want to kick on from what we were learning last year. And we're going to find that last year, as we went through that letter to the Ephesians, you remember that series? That was a great series, wasn't it? To be honest, I've preached a lot of series. That has to be my favorite series so far. Now, come in March, we're actually going to go through the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so if you... The, the, the way that God is actually taking us, he's actually building us brick upon brick, course upon course. And last year as we went through Ephesians, that was this huge umbrella of who the church is, God's plan and his mystery that's revealed to us, which is phenomenal. When we go into the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' manifesto of what it means to be truly human, what it means to embody the kingdom of God, what it means to live in such a way that God's kingdom literally breaks in and breaks forth into this world. So Sermon on the Mount is going even deeper. So um, that's the way it's kind of working like that. It's going to be really good. But last year, we went through this letter, six chapters, a letter to... We call it the letter to the Church of Ephesians, but it's actually a circular letter, which Paul, his very last writings, he is... 
distributing this to so many churches around the known region. We just call it the letter to the Ephesians because the church in Ephesus loved it so much. And all of our manuscripts actually say at the beginning, this is a letter to Ephesians, but it was a circular letter. Ephesians just owned it more than anyone else from what we can gather. But we sort of learned last year that Paul, out of all of his writing in that letter, he's actually making only one exhortation. And you may think Paul is really long-winded. Why are you writing all this, Paul, just to say one thing? Have you ever met someone who just talks and talks and talks and you're saying, just get to your point, just get to your point, just get to your point. That better not be your fiancé, by the way. <laughs> that is not a good way to start like this marriage trip. <laughs> But Paul is writing all of this and giving such weight so we actually take seriously what he says. And he says in Ephesians 4 verse 1, his one main exhortation of the entire letter, he says, Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, I beg you. Everyone say beg. This is not like a little suggestion. It's not like, you know what, if you've got time, how about you do this? He is literally begging, I'm pleading. If you're going to take anything of what I say seriously, if you're going to put any weight on anything, put the weight on this thing which I'm about to say. And he says, I beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you've been called by God. And immediately you go, whoa, that's amazing. I need to like look at my life and the grace that God's put on me. And like I'm Dave Ryder, I'm like this pastor and I need to take that seriously. And that's not what Paul's talking about, because he's talking about our calling to be the church. And all of a sudden, everyone goes, oh, but the church is so boring. Well, maybe the way that we live and express the church here in the West is really, really boring. But the New Testament vision of the church is nothing but boring. It is completely exhilarating. And what Paul wants to actually communicate and actually tell us and what the Holy Spirit wants to let us know as a church that is operating and living in 2021 is that we do not need to be a, bore, a boring, beige, dull, go by the everyday, like sort of do the same thing over and over and over again kind of church. There is a higher vision of what the church is supposed to be and what the church can embody in this world. And I want to be part of that church. Anyone else? I mean, seriously, I'm almost 42 now. I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, we were watching, actually, this is funny. Because Andrea's turning 40 on Friday. She's not dealing with it, okay? She's not here, all right? I might edit that out. Anyway, but, but we're, we're watching TV and there's this ad coming up for this retirement village. And it says, and this is what it says, and this is what it says, seniors 50 plus. I said, babe, look at that. I've got eight years and I'm a senior. <laughs> no, I've got my best life ahead of me. Come on. But you know what? I mean, I'm coming up to middle age. And like, seriously, if I'm going to do this. Yeah, yeah, you guys are going. Well, what is 42? Is 42 not middle age? No? No. Just a love and affirmation. <laughs> you know what? If I went into youth, if I preached at youth and I went to young adults and they said that, so they'd say, Dave, you're past middle age. <laughs> anyway, but if I've got this one life to live and if I'm part of the church, I want to have a real hot crack at it. You know what I'm saying? You know, I actually, like, seriously, if, if this is what scripture says, let's have a red hot go. Let's see what the church could possibly be. And Paul actually gives this vision about, about the church in Ephesians 3, verse 10 to 11. He says this, God's purpose in all of this was to use the church. He wants to use the church, right? Notice, God uses the church. Dave Ryder doesn't use the church. 
Right? That's really important to know. But God's purpose was for him to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And that reads like a little sentence. And unfortunately, we don't really pick up what Paul is trying to say. But even before that, we learned last year, Paul's given this imagery about like the living dead, like zombies walking around. And, and even there, it's like this picture that Paul's... Um, trying to paint of this apocalyptic kind of scene. I don't know if you've ever watched, um, I've never watched it because I wasn't that interested. Anyone watch Twilight? Yeah, the young ones. I would have thought like Twilight's even like a bit too old for you guys to watch. It's like a bit dated now. Twilight, Jackson used to love Batman when he was younger. But you know like those movies where it's like really grey and really dark. There's no colour. And, and the kind of picture which Paul's kind of painted is like this apocalyptic kind of grey scene. There's clouds, there's dark, and then there's people walking around and they have no colour in them. They're all grey. They're kind of like, like they're not happy. They're like kind of like, like just sad all the time. The, the, the mouths are down. And if you look a little bit even closer, they're not just even that. They're actually in chains. They're like in bondage and they're walking around. There's no life. There's no excitement. There's no passion and there's no joy. And everywhere you look, you see these people in this grey setting and and the same people over there, same people over there, some people over there. Then out of the corner of your eye, you kind of see, wait a minute, there's something a little bit different over there. There's, there's a pop of color there and there's a pop of color there and there's a pop of color there and there's a pop of color there. And you're thinking to yourself, what are these little pops of color in this, in this scene, in this context where there's just gray after gray after gray? There's a purple, there's a yellow, there's an orange. There's these pops all around and all of a sudden, the camera zooms into one of these pops of color and in this pop of color, you see these people and they're smiling and you see these people and they're dancing and you see these people and they're loving and you see these people and they're serving and they're pouring themselves out and you think to yourself what are these people doing who are these group of people because they look so different to everyone else in the world Paul says that's the church that's the church. We are supposed to be this contrasting society living in the world right now. We are supposed to be a polis within a polis, a city within a city, a nation within a nation. Please do not pray to God. God, you need to make an Australia and a Christian nation. There is no such thing. The Christian nation is the church of Jesus Christ. We are a nation within a nation, and that's the way we're supposed to live. Does any of this sound familiar? And with our very demonstration, we are supposed to be showing these principalities and powers who have this agenda of dehumanizing people and trapping them and keeping them in bondage. We have this great privilege of making a complete mockery of their entire agenda because Colossians 2 verse 15 says that via the cross, he has disarmed the principalities and powers and he has made a public spectacle of them. So even though the rest of this world, they can be chained up in bondage, those principalities and those powers, according to the scripture, they can't touch me. They can't touch you. Unless, of course, you gave them the authority to do so. And if you have, you need to take that authority back. That authority does not belong to them. It belongs to you. But we are supposed to live our life as a mockery to them. They're trying to do all this stuff. And we're living in a way that lets them know, you know what? You're chained up people, you're dehumanizing people, you're putting people in bondage. But look at me, I'm still dancing, I'm still rejoicing, I'm still serving, I'm still giving, I'm still going to reflect the glory of God. You can't touch me. That's what it means to be the church. Fred Lehman says this, God purposes to set new creation in the midst of the old. Redeem people in the midst of the fallen. 
Love in the midst of hostility, self-abasement in the midst of self-assertion, submission in the midst of domination to humanize and redeem the fallen structures. So God's plan is that he takes you and me as the church of Jesus Christ, redeem people, set apart people, new community, new, new humanity, the new community, the new creation, and he puts a smack bang in the middle of the old so that the old can become redeemed. So if you're thinking to yourself, God, you need to get me out of this place. There's all a bunch of non-Christians here. That's exactly why you're there. So live a life worthy of the call because you've been called by God. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. We're supposed to be this contrasting society. And if you remember, we talked about last year from the very first pages of our Holy Scripture. God reveals himself to humanity. He starts off in the book of Genesis. From the very first pages, he reveals his modus of operation, his MO. His modus of operation has been, will continue to be, that he uses his covenantal people to administrate his covenantal reign. In other words, God's will does not always get done. Now that might shock you, but if God's will always did get done, why would Jesus pray, thy kingdom come, like pray that thy kingdom come, thy will be done? No, God's will is done when you and I as a church participate and partner with God to administrate his covenantal reign and his covenantal rule in this world. You want to see your community change? Well, you go out and change it. That's the way God has set this up. That's the way God has set this up. The church, the family of God, demonstrates new creation, new humanity by reaching out and serving the world and extending and administrating. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that is what it means to live a life worthy of the call because you've been called by God. The problem is, in my observation, not just my observation, a lot of people's observation, is that the church in the West seems to have lost what this could possibly look like. And um, to be honest, as someone who is a follower of Jesus Christ and someone who is your, your brother in Christ, um, not, not someone, like I say, someone who's a senior pastor, let's put that to the side. Someone as a fellow believer, brother in Christ, I'd like to try to recover what this could possibly look like. The problem is it's not too easy to do that because you and I are living in a world where we have these ideologies that we are literally born into. And we are like fish swimming in water. Fish don't even recognize or realize that they're in water. They can't even feel water because that's all that they've known. But there are ideologies that have crept into parts of the church because they are parts of the culture. And unless we are aware of these ideologies, we have no chance of actually swimming upstream and living differently. These ideologies are things like self-autonomy, have you ever tried talking to someone and their mindset is, don't tell me what to do. Try being a senior pastor. No. Don't tell me what to do. Fine. You go and destroy your life. <laughs> Seriously. The amount of conversations last year, like the second half of last year, the amount of conversations and meetings and interactions Andrew and I have had to have with people who've literally destroyed their, their life to a point, they've done such stupid things, and now they come to us and say, Dave, fix it. It's like, are you serious? It takes a lot of time to fix dumb, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it does. But self-autonomy, I mean, could you imagine if, I mean, it's Valentine's Day. My beautiful Valentine is at 
newspring at the moment. Could you imagine if I had in my mindset when it comes to my marriage, I can do whatever I want. Um, incidentally, guys, a lot of marriages are suffering because a lot of fellas do have that mindset. Um, I'd encourage you to get rid of that mindset. <laughs> it doesn't work. Self-autonomy, you think you can do whatever you want? Like, I'm with Andrew, I've got kids, and Andrew, like, I can, I can go wherever I want, I can go hang out. Like, seriously, you just start living that life and tell me, is that life going to lead towards human flourishing or is it going to lead you somewhere else? It's going to lead you somewhere else, isn't it? But self-autonomy is something that's really crept into the church. Unlimited freedom. Freedom is something that we hold on to as a society as higher than almost anything else. Ultimate freedom. Could you imagine if all of us got into our car after the service, and it doesn't matter how old you are, if you're like three years old, you can drive, it's okay. But every one of us said, no, I have ultimate freedom. I may not even have a license, but I can still drive. You know, and I, there's no road rules. I can do whatever I want on the road. No, like, could you imagine the chaos that would happen if all of us had that mindset? That we've got ultimate freedom. We can do whatever we want. I can drive anywhere I want. It says 60, you know what? I'm going to, like, go 120. That's all right. You know, I'll drive on the left. I'm going to drive on the right. I, I can, in fact, you know what? Other people, they're driving home, like, going, like, forward. I'm actually going to drive home in reverse. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> could you imagine that? No, no, no. This is what freedom is. This is what freedom is. Freedom is, 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 is this reality that I can get into my car today and drive home safely because there is a paradox of freedom. If you want to have some freedom, you need to have some restrictions. There needs to be some laws that govern. You know, these musicians like Tim over here, if he actually wants the freedom to actually be able to improvise, he needs to have the discipline to do his scales. Now, there's a paradox of freedom. But we live in a world that says, no, I've got ultimate freedom. I can do whatever I want, seriously. And that creeps into the church. It creeps into the church, trust me. Individualistic consumerism, this is a huge one. Huge one. Huge. Somehow, somehow, somehow. And I, I get it because we are born into a world of consumerism. I was born in Perth, Western Australia, all right? If you are someone who was born into a Western world, guess what? You are literally born into a consumeristic world. We know nothing else. We know nothing else. We're born into this culture. And yet the church is supposed to be this contrasting society. It's supposed to be something completely different. And my hope, my prayer, my desire is that we as a church, that we will determine in our hearts that 2021, we're going to try with everything that we've got to swim upstream and to actually be salt and light in this world. Now, when it comes to um, some of this, these ideologies, these kind of ideologies were really born in the 1960s. In the 1960s, when it comes to the church, there was the beginning of the church growth movement, um, the church growth movement. And um, one really interesting book, which I read a couple of years ago, was Eugene Peterson's um, memoirs called The Pastor, a brilliant book. And he was talking about in the 1960s how the church growth movement actually started and the temptations and the advice that he was given to actually go down um, the avenue of church growth um, strategies, and he actually blatantly refused to do it. But in the 1960s, um, this church growth movement began, and what it did is that it borrowed, strategy, uh, it borrowed strategies um, from the world, and primarily one of the big strategies it borrowed was this idea of marketing. Uh, marketing. Um, and this idea of marketing has, in many instances, promoted this individual consumeristic society and culture that has infiltrated the church. 
advertising is really interesting. It kind of started with the idea that we have a great product, so let's let people know we have a great product and let's sell a great product. That makes sense, right? And then after World War II, it kind of shifted a little bit. There were a couple of things that made um, marketing change a little bit. One thing I think was, um, if my memory serves me right, um, in America they were trying to sell um, the Volkswagen. But that was Hitler's car, right? So how do you sell Hitler's car to Americans? So they had to change things. Another thing also was cigarettes. Um, and what they found was that men were um, bu buying cigarettes, but women didn't buy cigarettes. So they're thinking, how do we get women to buy cigarettes? So they actually cuddled up to Hollywood and actually presented something different in order to... There were things that happened that actually changed their mindset. So instead of selling or trying to sell a great product, what they did is that they said, we're going to sell a lifestyle now. We're going to sell a glamorous lifestyle or, or, or an experience. And even today, when you look at your television or even in a magazine, you will see that they are not necessarily selling a product, they're actually selling an experience, right? Look at the Coca-Cola ads. They're on the screen. You know, they're not really selling Coke, they're selling a lifestyle. Apparently, if I have a Coke, I can be 25 again. You know, I can have abs. I've never had abs before. I can have abs, I can go surfing, I can do all that kind of stuff. I can do that. Look at the cars. They're not selling a car, they're selling a lifestyle, aren't they? If I have this car, I can go out, out, I can go out bush, it can do anything I want. They're selling a lifestyle. But then they sort of tweaked that again and they moved to this idea of branding. Branding. And branding became a really, really big thing. Every um, product has a brand. In fact, I remember years ago, there used to be this um, ad on TV, and it was a Mac and a um, PC ad. Um, it was actually a Mac ad. But what they had is they had this cool, hip guy saying, I'm a Mac. And then there was this boring, dull, grey guy saying, I'm a PC. <laughs> Do you remember that ad? What were they doing? Well, they actually took a brand, and they were adding a personality to the brand. So what's happened is that firstly it was about selling a great product and it was selling great experience. Now we're in a place where it's about branding and branding has now embodied a certain personality. So the idea is that if you actually wear a brand or if you take on a brand, you vicariously take on that personality. Now earlier this year, a couple of weeks ago actually, that really hit me really hard because I'm an Android guy. Any Apple people here? Boo! <laughs> But in my, in my Android experience, I've always been a Samsung guy. You know, Samsung. Samsung's cool. I went, at, I went, I went out to the, all of the, um, the phone shops and I was looking at the, the Samsungs. I can't afford Samsung anymore. They are far too expensive. So I had to get a cheaper phone, a lot cheaper. And even now, I'm looking at my phone and I'm holding my phone. I'm trying to hide it from people. I'm getting frustrated with my phone because it can't do what my other phone used to do. But, but there was this identity that actually came with my phone. I'm a Samsung guy. I'm proud to show you my Samsung. I don't need to use my phone. I'm just going to bring it out so you can see, oh, I've got the latest Samsung. But, but what happened is that brand actually takes on these personalities. And when we have a brand, when we own a brand, or when we wear a brand, we start to embody that personality. That has been the latest tweak that's happened with advertising. It's about branding. Now think about the church. Has any of that come into the church? You betcha. I bet you even at the top of your mind, you think about that branding and about wearing a brand and like embodying the personality of a brand. You can think about churches right now, can't you? We're, 
Like you can sort of seriously think, you know, I'm this kind of Christian or I'm that kind of Christian. I'm that kind of Christian. Well, actually, if you're a Christian, guess what our message is? It's either an offense or it's a stumbling block. I'm a cool Christian. No, you're not. I've got a cool message. Wait a minute. Is your message the gospel? But that's happened, you see. Everyone's gone very quiet. <laughs> but all of this stuff has actually brought us to a place where the church in the West has become very individualistic. And every single church pastor I talk to knows it. We talk about it. But we all seem to be trapped. It's like this slipstream that we're in and we can't seem to get off. You know, every single one. It's like we, 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 we all come and we all realize that there's individualistic thing and it's almost like everyone comes to church and the church is all about me. It's all about me. It's all about me. And the church very rarely is about us. But the church is actually supposed to be us. And some of our Christian tradition has actually helped form this mindset of individualistic consumerism as well. And the way that our tradition has helped form that is because we haven't been disciplined enough as teachers of the word, as pastors of the word, we have not been disciplined enough to actually equally engage with all of the atonement metaphors given throughout Scripture. Because there's not just one atonement metaphor. There's actually a variety. That's why we don't have one succinct atonement theory in Scripture because there are so many metaphors that are given. One of the great metaphors, which is really important, is the courtroom metaphor, the forensic metaphor that lets me know that Jesus died for my sin. Isn't that good to know? Jesus died for my sin. So important to know. But it's this idea of being in a courtroom and Jesus declares that you are righteous. He declares that your sins are forgiven, and that is fantastic. Romans 5 verse 1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification, justified, that is a legal word. It is a declaration of something that is true. And that is awesome. My sins are forgiven. That is so good. Especially, it's so good, especially when I do some silly things and when I do live less than that righteous call, when I slip, when I fall, when I stumble. It's so important to know that even though I just stuffed up, my sins are still forgiven. Anyone else? Are you guys all perfect? It's really good to know. But it would be absolutely incomplete to believe that we are saved and my sins are completely forgiven and that's it. Because there are actually other atonement metaphors throughout Scripture. One really important one we learned in Ephesians last year. Now imagine you're still in that courtroom and the judge is over there, God, and, and you're over there, but you, you, you're in this courtroom, but out of the corner of your eye, you're looking at the door and it says court, but you notice there's actually a word in front of that word court. The word is family. And maybe for the first time you just realize, wait a minute, I'm not just in court, I'm now in family court. And the whole process goes on and, and you declare justice and righteousness. But at exactly the same time, at precisely the same time, not only are you declared right, not only are you declared that your sins are forgiven, but exactly precisely at the same time, you are also adopted into a family. We learned about that in Ephesians, didn't we? That atonement metaphor of adoption. 
So not only are my sins forgiven, but at the same time, I am now part of a family. And that family comes with great privilege, but also comes with great responsibility. And part of being part of the family means I am supposed to embody certain things in order to actually participate and be part of that family. You get what I'm saying? You know where I'm going, don't you? Our salvation is not about Jesus just died for my sins. Praise God, that's fantastic. But at the very same time, I'm now part of this new community. I'm now part of this new humanity. I'm now part of this new society. I'm now part of the family of God. And that brings with it responsibilities and privileges. And when it comes to being a Christian, having our, our lives saved, we need to understand that we are part of the us. My life is not about me. I'm sorry, it is not about you. The, our life is about us. And if any time we have in our mind that my life is about me and it's not about us doing this together, I need to ask some questions to you. And there are some question marks that are hovering over your life. And the question marks are like this. Do you understand who you are? Do you understand who God is? And do you even understand what this is all about? And for 2021, in my mind is, let's erase some of those question marks. Let's get rid of some of those question marks. Because if you really do have fundamentally in the core of, of who you are, a fundamental belief that my life, this is between me and God and no one else, I need to ask some really big questions of your salvation. So do you understand what this is about? Because this is so much more vibrant and bigger than what you could possibly imagine. And of course, this paradigm is threaded throughout Scripture. Actually, it's kind of um, <laughs> assumed through Scripture. And we're going to go through a passage of Scripture where I'm just going to um, quickly identify how this is. Hebrews 10, verse 19 and 25. Let's read from verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great um, priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with a full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled and cleansed us, um, from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and, and all the more as you see the day approaching. There are two significant words that are placed side by side, and they are repeated through this passage of Scripture. They are repeated in verse 22, verse 23, and verse 24. Those two words are, let us, let us. And what the author is actually articulating to the church, he is saying, in light of what Jesus has done for each of us individually, let us collectively, as the church, do these three things. And these three things are all about you and I flourishing individually and collectively. Human flourishing is what God's agenda is. The dehumanization of humanity is what the agenda of the principalities and powers is. But God's agenda is for you, me, and everyone living around this hills area to flourish, to actually have great relationships, to live well, to flourish. That is what his agenda is. And understand straight off the bat, when it comes to human flourishing, when it comes to living a more full life, when it comes to feeling more human, when it comes to feeling more of alive, that when we talk about human flourishing, human flourishing is a we word. It's an us word. It is not a me word. 
Scripture lets us know that if in our heart, we have in our heart that we want to flourish, we want our families to flourish, we want our children to flourish, we want our neighbourhoods to flourish, you cannot flourish with an individualistic mindset. It is a let us paradigm. That's what this author is actually letting us know straight off the bat. That in order to be truly human, to flourish as a human, it never happens with a mindset of individuality. This is not a mindset of, you know what, this is all about me. Got a mindset, this is all about me. It will not lead to human flourishing. It will lead you to other places. It is only possible with the context of let us. And there are three things that this author lets us know. The first thing is this, is that we help each other flourish in faith. Verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Let us draw near to God. Did you know that the church is supposed to function and operate that we help each other draw near to God? Have you ever been in a place where you feel like really isolated from God? Ever been in a place where you feel really separated from God? Where you feel like really fractured from God? And what is the temptation when you feel that? The temptation is to stay away from church, isn't it? But you don't understand, you don't recognize and realize that the reason why that we feel isolated and fractured is because we're not living in the us. We're living in the mean. That a function of the church is collectively we help each other draw near to God. So anytime where I feel far from God, anytime I feel distant from God, I shouldn't be running away from you guys. I should be running towards you. And I should be saying, you know what? I'm feeling dry right now. I'm feeling absent from God. I can't feel Him. I can't hear Him. Help me draw near to God. Let us draw near to God. Drawing near to God is something we do together. You can't do it by yourself. Because this is the way that God has shaped the church. That the church is constructed so that we individually and collectively, we draw near to God together. Isn't that good to know? <laughs> do you have friends who are helping you flourish in your faith? Because here's the deal you do get to decide who your friends are. You may even have a bunch of people in your life, they call themselves Christians, and you get together, and guess what? You're not drawing near to God, you're not drawing near to the church. In fact, your conversations are leading you away from church. I've been a pastor for 20 years. That happens all the time, doesn't it? Yeah? We help each other flourish in faith. My heart, my desire is that all of us have people in our life who are up close and personal in our life and that they would help us draw near to God together. Second thing, we help each other hold on to hope. Hold on to hope. Verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promises faithful. Hope is a really, really slippery word because we don't really know what hope is. I was kind of hoping I won the lotto last night. I didn't buy a ticket though. That might help. Hope is a really slippery word because a lot of times we do not do the work to understand what true biblical hope is. Last year we learned Ephesians 1 verse 9. God has revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. Verse 10, at the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. That is our true biblical hope, that at the end of this age, he is bringing everything in heaven and earth under his authority. And again, that's just like a word. It's like, it doesn't mean too much. 
But last year we started going through Mark, and in Mark chapter 1, I remember saying the story, there's this interesting little story where Jesus steps into a synagogue, and in the synagogue, no one else knew, but there's this guy who's being tormented by demons. And what happens in a synagogue, as soon as you come into a synagogue, you come under the authority of Torah. So the situation is like this. There is this guy who is part of the community, who's been part of the, the lives of the, the men and women of that community for God knows how long, but for a long time, and he is coming under the authority of Torah. And still he's being tormented, still he's being harassed, still he's possessed by these demons, and no one knows until a higher authority steps into the room. And as, Je- as soon as Jesus steps into the room, things start to shake. Things start to move. And all of a sudden, this guy who's been harassed, tormented, and dehumanized by this evil spirit is released. He is set free. And he begins his journey of flourishment because he comes under a higher authority. Wouldn't it be amazing for that individual, right? Could you imagine what, what the individual was feeling? The life he felt. That would be so exciting, Right? Wouldn't that be extraordinary? Well, imagine a day when not just an individual, but everything in heaven and earth comes under that same authority. That is our biblical hope. That the agenda of dehumanization, it will be eradicated. That flourishing would happen, not just here in Kalamunda, but it would happen in the heavens and on earth. All of this will happen. That is our true biblical hope. And we need to have true biblical hope because if we do not have a clear understanding of the end, our behavior in the middle gets shaped accordingly. Have you ever wondered why you see some Christians and they're just like acting like all like you're just mucking up, man? Why are you acting like that? Why are you saying that? Why is your behavior like this? And a lot of times it is because they do not have a clear understanding of true biblical hope because the way you see the end shapes the way you behave in the middle. We talked about this last year. So, so important. And hope is something that we are supposed to hold on to together because hope slips. I guarantee you in this church, 2020 was a year where hope slipped. It slipped. I get it. I still got you. You're still part of the family. Hope slips. Because things do happen. And when hope slips, you do all crazy stuff in the middle. I saw some crazy stuff in the middle last year. And I'm not intimidated by it, to be honest. All it let me know is that hope slipped. And that's why we're part of the family of God. We love each other. We care for each other. And collectively, let us hold unswervingly to this hope. For he who promised is faithful. Is faithful. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said decades ago, he said this, If ever the world needed the witness and testimony of Christian people, in it is at this present time. He said this decades ago. The world is unhappy. It is distracted and it is frightened. And what it needs is is to see stars shining out of the heavens in the midst of the darkness, attracting the world by rebuking that darkness and giving it light, showing how it too can live that quality of life. The world desperately needs us to hold unswervingly to hope. And if we can be clear about the end, our behavior in the middle will be that exhortation, live life worthy of the call. 
And the way that we live will literally be a rebuke to those principalities and the powers and the darkness. The very last thing before we close up, we help each other grow in love and good works. Verse 24, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. I don't know if you've ever realized this, but I'm a better person and I'm a more loving person because of you. Thank you. Have you ever thought about that? As we come together, we spur each other on and we love better. Husbands, would you love your wives? Would you like to love your wives better this year? Actually, wives, would you, love your, would you like your husbands to love you better this year? Yeah? Husbands, she said yes. I want to put Andrea on a higher pedestal this year. I want to prefer Andrea more this year. Our life as Christians is supposed to be a cruciformed life. That means that as Christians, we are supposed to pour our lives out. The problem is we live in a culture that is continually trying to fill our lives up. But our life is supposed to be the opposite. You want to have a flourishing marriage? Pour your life out. Pour it out. Don't hold anything back. Don't hold it back. Well, I'll only do it if he does it. Hey, his, the way, whether he or not he pours his life out, that's between him and God. Pour it out. Love. Respect each other. Give. But we do this better when we come together. Husbands, you're going to love your wives a lot better if you hang out with other husbands who want to do the same. Wives, you're going to be a more flourishing woman if you're hanging out with godly women, having godly conversations, right? Not those other conversations that happen. <laughs> they do. Godly conversations, godly relationships, and you'll do it. Amen. I've read way over time, but I'm going to finish with that. I reckon that's enough for us. But this is the story of us. This is what God had in mind. This is what Paul has in mind when he says, I beg you to live life worthy of the call, for you've been called by God. We've been called to be the church. The church is not about me. The church is about us coming together as this contrasting society in this world. And we rebuke the darkness and we rebuke the principalities and powers in the way that we live, pouring our lives out drawing near to God together, holding on to hope together, spurring each other on together in love and good works. And this is what it means to be true humanity, reflecting God's glory and God's love into this world. And literally, if we do that, this community will not be the same.